Please open your scriptures to Psalm 19. If you're a guest there and you don't have a copy of the scriptures, you'll find one in the seat in front of you on the rack. And if you don't own one, you're welcome to take that copy and keep it and read it. Psalm 19, if you're not quite sure where to go, just open the Bible up kind of in the middle. It should be in the Psalms and then go to the Psalm that is numbered 19. Psalm 19 is one of the more memorable songs. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, wrote of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Just for sake of clarity, here is how we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the entire psalm right out of the gates, and we're going to see three voices. All three voices point to a single theme And then that single theme should then bring to our mind three primary scripture texts, one Old Testament, two New Testament. See, as we're moving that direction, see if you can't start placing in your mind, critically thinking ahead, what scripture texts, one Old Testament, two New Testament, this might lead to. Here's the first voice. It's the voice of the skies. It was already read for us. Ethan read this portion for us, but look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Verse 2, it pours out speech and it reveals knowledge. How is this a voice? This is a wordless witness. It happened again this morning. For me, we have an east-facing back porch and the sun came up cast shadows on the house, the birds were singing, the warmth of the sunlight, the moisture of the dew, and it said something about God. And the person in a ditch down on Colfax, hung over, who felt that sun come up and warm their skin and bring them back to some kind of normality, that said something about God too. It pours forth speech. It says something. Creation is a type of language, a sky full of stars. I remember when we were living in Zambia and we went camping and we were we were where there were no lights at all, no external lights. And I told the kids to turn off their torches, right, their flashlights. And we let our eyes adjust looking down. And then I said, now look up. And it was stunning. I have never seen the stars like we saw them that night. And it said something about God. It poured forth some kind of speech. The heavens declare that the creator designer is awesome. The sky proclaims his handiwork. But it's more than just a spectacular display of power. It is a reminder of his constant protective grace. That firmament in Genesis chapter 1 when he spoke And he separated chaos from chaos, if you would. That has been a protective barrier ever since God spoke it into existence. He is all glorious and he is a gracious, protecting father. This means that all people, all people everywhere right now know something about God, something about truth, something about meaning, design and beauty, even though, as Romans one says, they might suppress that truth they have the truth but they're holding it down but this speaks all languages 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. Look at verse 3. There is no speech, Kikamba, Kiswahili, Arabic, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Everybody hears this voice. Verse 4. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Every tribe, every nation, every city, every village, every individual, every nomad hears this voice daily. Do you know this is why there is such a frenzied attempt to muzzle this voice? It's a real voice. And people are trying to muzzle it with a belief system that tries to get people to believe it's all random. This is all by choice. We are only one chromosome away from being like chimpanzees. Because then we are as accountable as the chimpanzee in that kind of thinking. There is no authoritative creator. There is no great designer. There is no judge to whom we are accountable to. Nature tells us about God's reality and power. But you know what it fails to tell us? It fails to tell us about His saving grace. So we need another voice. And that can be found beginning in verse 7. Drew read this portion for us. It begins with the law of the Lord. In the Old Testament, it would have been known as the Torah, not just the law, but the writings or the, the Pentateuch, the five scrolls. It's perfect. This section, verses 7 to 10, consists of a series of adjectives describing the character of God's word. Really, God's word singular, six descriptions or six different facets of the word. But notice this. Look at after every description it has this divine title, the law of the, of the Lord, the testimony of the, of the Lord. You know, not all laws are perfect, but the law of the Lord is. Do you know, not all fear is pure, but the fear of the Lord is. Six descriptions. Let's move through these quickly. Because in, in poetic language, he doesn't even take time to sort of parse these out and explain them all. He's simply saying, here's a facet. Here's what it does. Here's another facet. So let's look at this. The law of the Lord is perfect, complete, whole. It lacks nothing. What does it do? It brings life. It revives the soul. It restores vitality. And it's interesting, in the New Testament, we are told that the law kills, right? The letter kills. So how does this go together with the Torah in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the term law was a much more comprehensive word. It was a general term for everything that God wanted you to know about him. Covenant, holiness, mercy, forgiveness. That even when people break covenant, God is faithful to his covenant. The law was a comprehensive word to introduce you to who he is wasn't just a checklist to abide by. It was an actual knowledge of him. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is sort of not reinterpreting the law, but reapplying the original intent of the law, he says, you have heard that it was said before by those of old time, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, don't even be angry. That was the intent of the law in the first place. Everything that God wanted you to know about himself. So God's word, as far as the testimonies, look at the next description. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
It's trustworthy. Because it's perfect, it can be guaranteed. And, and here it shows that God's word helps simple people. We were all simple at once. The Apostle Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. We're all simple, but God's word, God's law is sure, it's trustworthy, and it helps graduate simple people to wise people. Simple people who refuse to move towards the path of wisdom, they become fools. And an unrepentant fool becomes a scorner. You'll see this sort of developed in Proverbs. But the law allows simple people to become wise people. It's like a road sign that's warning you of curves up ahead or treacherous and slippery conditions. You listen to it. You slow down, hopefully. You take the turns with care. It is a warning sign. It makes simple people wise people. Look at the next in verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. This guidance for uprightness, precepts, is not described as restrictive. Right? We think precepts, oh, don't bind me, right? don't take away my freedom. It's not viewed as restrictive, but a source of rejoicing. If you were given a map, right? I know there's treasure hidden here in Colorado. Well, I don't know that. I hear there is. And many people have tried to find this treasure. They've committed their life, adult life to finding this particular treasure. If you were given a map from a trustworthy source with very specific, fine details, right? The standard, you know, dashed line, big X. Would you follow the precepts if it led you to a billion dollars gold? See, it's not restrictive. Oh, I don't want to turn right here. I want to turn left. Well, good luck finding the treasure. No, you will follow that. Why? Because of the joy, the reward that is to be had. See, some of us, we're so simple, we never get out of our minds that restrictions are not enslaving. God's good restrictions are freeing so that we can enjoy the right rewards. Every good And perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no shadow of turning. Do you know God's gifts will never make you put your head down on your pillow at night and feel remorse and regret? Young people, do you know God's laws will never make you feel dirty or wrong or in trouble? The precepts of the Lord are right Rejoicing the heart. Verse 8, again, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The word commandment communicates authority. Again, rather than a tedious restriction, they lead to an illuminated life. We would call this purpose. God's word shines in and radiates life so that you have true meaning and purpose in this life. Look at verse 9. It kind of switches here. Uh, The fear of the Lord, it's actually a response now rather than an attribute of the law. It is a response. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It is pure to honor and revere God who speaks these words. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Keep reading in verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Literally, God's Total law altogether are right, 
They are all together entirely right. And then he adds this description because that is so because the law entirely altogether is right. Look at what he says about its desirability. Look at verse 10. More to be desired. What's more to be desired? The law, the commandments, the precepts, the rules, the fear. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You know, so often our desires are misplaced or misguided and self-centered, even as Christians. We find ourselves not desiring the right things. We find ourselves desiring and developing a taste for the wrong things. And perhaps if all you see are commandments and restrictions and enslavement, perhaps you're looking at it all wrong. Perhaps you're actually approaching the word all wrong. So how does the multifaceted word of God relate to us as believers, as followers of Jesus? Because Jesus fulfilled it, does it mean that we no longer have any use for it? Let me suggest this. First, we are not antinomian. That means against the law. It's not like all of a sudden the Old Testament is irrelevant. Or even the New Testament is irrelevant. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7.12 said this, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He says this to a young man in ministry in 1 Timothy 1.8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There's still a use of the law. There's a benefit to be had and a delight to be found in God's word. Jesus said this. By the way, this is after he said he's fulfilled the law. He said in John 15:14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Second, we're not legalists. Pharisaical legalism stemmed from a belief that strict adherence to the written law constituted a clear sign of faith. Regardless of heart, this is how this is sort of how this sort of degenerated as time moved on. It was, well, we keep the law. Matter of fact, they kept the law so well, they thought they could even condemn the son of God. That's how pharisaical, that's how legalist they had become. Why don't your disciples wash their hands? They actually condemned, they thought from a superior view of the law, they could condemn the son of God. The Old Testament Torah, the law, did not offer entrance into the community of faith. It was rather a life received to those already committed to God in faith. Or as Gerald Wilson said, Torah served as a response to faith, not a sign of faith. Let me fill that out a little bit. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. By the way, that's not happened yet. Until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He also said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what does the law do? What does the law do for us this morning? First, the law still reveals sin. Paul said this in Romans 3.20. 
For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law. Listen to this. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 7, 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So there may be someone here this morning without joy because the law has illumined the folly of your weekend choices. There's no joy. That's how the law is working. The law sort of puts that force up against you still. Secondly, here's how the law works through the difficulty. We could even say impossibility of keeping the law. It either drives us to forsake God or it drives us to depend on God. On his mercy through faith, Jesus said this to the Jews. I love this indictment in John seven, verse 19. He talks to the Jews who prided themselves in keeping the law. Has not Moses given you the law? question he follows it with a statement yet none of you keeps the law james 2:10 for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it you feel that that's what the law does the law is intended to drive us to jesus christ the only perfect lawkeeper the fulfillment of the law So what the law does is actually seen in the third voice. We haven't gotten to that. We've seen general revelation, right? The voice of the heavens, specific revelation, the voice of scripture. Now we're going to see the voice of God's servant. Danielle read this portion for us. First, the voice of creation. Second, the voice of the word. Third, the voice of the Lord's servant. Look at verse 11. Moreover, by them, okay, the middle section The law, the different facets of the law, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Just go back up to to verse 11 again. By them is your servant warned. Do you know warning is a good thing? If we find ourselves in trouble... And we have friends that were near us that could have prevented it. What do we say? Why didn't you warn me not to send that text? Why? Or an accident. I mean, we, if I had only had one second more warning, warning is a good thing. Whereas I was reminded last night, a little toddler who's very curious about the grill and he goes towards it with his hand. And I say, no. Is that unloving? I, I wasn't trying to be politically toddler correct in saying no. It was just no. Did I just limit his free will? Sort of. I at least cautioned it. No. Warning is a good thing. And warning comes with reward. What was the reward? That child has no idea. Sometimes we are so much like children. All we see are the warnings. All God is telling me is no, no, step back. The reward is he didn't have to go to bed last night with burns on his hand. 
The reward is the parents hopefully had a normal night's rest. That's called collateral blessing. There's a lot of reward to listening to the warnings. The engine light comes on. You don't take a piece of black electrical tape and hide the light. It's trying to warn you of more serious, more costly repairs. Folks, can we as, can we as children of the faith at least become young adults in the faith and say God's warnings are good? He is warning us because he loves us. He is warning us because he knows the damage of something and the reward of something else. Warning then actually leads to greater freedom. The freedom of a little one to sleep without third degree burns. It's a greater freedom. The psalmist sees in God's word the divine assistance needed to avoid both interesting hidden faults and presumptuous sins. Unintentional errors. Do you know we sin even when we don't know it? Hidden. It's hidden. We're not even sure. Our motives are just skewed. A touch. Our response is tone. There's a, there's a little bit of sinful irritation we're not even picking up. But somebody else may be. God, keep me from those. Keep me from unintentional errors, the psalmist is saying. But also keep me from willful sins. Keep me from choosing headlong to do what is wrong. Keep me within that temptation. Give me the warning and the wisdom to see the way of escape. It's not about sinless perfectionism or self-righteousness. It's about avoiding a great transgression. As a matter of fact, look at verse 13. Look at what he prays. This is his real prayer. Keep me from these hidden things. Keep me from presumptuous sins. Keep me from great transgression. You see that? Oh, God, keep us from gross sins that mar the image of God deeply. It's about heeding the warning and experiencing the reward of right choices, healthy living, a clear conscience. Those are the three voices. Now, let's look at the one theme. In the first six verses, the son in particular is highlighted as a specific of the general. So you have this. General voice, the heavens declare, and he moves to a specific application, the sun. And he takes several verses to sort of, upon uh, highlight the sun. But what about the sun communicates something about God? Do you know that nature communicates both beauty and harshness? Design and curse? Beautiful sunrise on the Serengeti while the animals are waking up and all the different sounds and the, and the hippos making their grunt sounds as they communicate on the river. That communicates something is beautiful and designed. And then a Nile crocodile ambushes a Tonga woman coming down to the river to draw water for her family. And that also communicates something about the curse. But what is it about the sun in particular that says something about God. Go back to verse 4, the second part. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom. Okay, bridegroom, first word. And like a strong man, champion. Strong man, second word. Let's just stop there. A bridegroom is typically dressed in his finest garments and there's something about his countenance on his wedding day that beams, if you would, with the joyousness of that occasion. He is like a bridegroom, his wedding day. He's also like a valiant warrior hero. 
a champion runner who moves across the sky with ease. Nothing, nothing gets in his way. Bold, swift. That tells us something about God. But it's the final phrase that pins down the specific application. It's the all-seeing sun. Look at verse 6, the second part. There is, out of everything else he's already said about it, there is nothing hidden from its heat. C.S. Lewis states, Then the psalmist thinks of the sun, the unimaginable speed of its daily voyage from east to west, finally of its heat, Not, of course, the mild heats of our climate, but the cloudless, blinding, tyrannous rays hammering the hills, searching every cranny. The key phrase on which the whole poem depends is, there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. It pierces everywhere. Then at once, in verse 7, he is talking of something else, which hardly seems to him something else because it is so like the all-piercing, all-detecting sunshine. Nothing is hidden from it. The law of the Lord is perfect. That's what God's Word does. It doesn't stop. It's not intimidated. It illuminates. It beams. It runs forward. It really doesn't have any any foes. And when it does that, it exposes everything. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews said it this way. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. The word of God is like the sun, and God is these things. A personal God who sees everything. Three voices develop that one theme. The all-seeing God who exposes and knows. And that should lead us to three books. And this is our conclusion. The first one, of course, is is in Genesis. The creation narrative. Matter of fact, this is going to capture the first section of Psalm 19. If, if, we're, if, we're, if we're dividing Psalm 19 into three sections, three voices, this is the first voice. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said with a voice, let there be, and there was. In verse 7, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so, and God called the expanse heaven verse 16 and God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night all that says something about God and it still says something about God second in Genesis still we see the second section of Psalm 19 the goodness and authority of God in providing a life-giving commandment in Genesis 2 Genesis 2, verse 16 says this, And the Lord God commanded, this is before sin even entered into the world, the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Warning, reward. We tend to focus on the one restriction, that one tree, 
that one piece of fruit rather than on the wide breadth of freedom that God created. The third part of Psalm 19 is found in Genesis 3. And it shows how easily the human heart can be seduced by another voice. Genesis 3 begins by introducing us to this voice. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman. He spoke to the woman. He speaks. He offers an alternative voice. And it's interesting that the tempter's seduction begins with a question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What questions are you grappling with this morning? And are you sure the source of that question comes from an all-powerful God who loves you? Perhaps there's a voice that says, How can God be both all-powerful and all-good in light of all the suffering and evil in the world? Or perhaps there's a voice that asks, Is it really fair that there's only one way to God? Wouldn't it seem more like God to allow all religions to approach God on their own terms? Hmm, a question. Or perhaps you've heard it said, Is it not a glaring contradiction to say that God is all wrath and all love at the same time? I mean, I don't think I would worship a God like that. This alternative voice is often a question, but it moves to confident statement. That's the danger of it. Eve began to interact and dialogue with that other voice, and she failed to believe that the law, the commandment, both warns and protects So the the serpent moves from question to bold assertion. Quickly here, verse 4, Genesis 3. The serpent said, he's no longer asking questions. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Do you know what we call that? We call that a lie. A bold-faced lie sprinkled with confidence so it sounds believable. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's voice now maligns the character of God and he verbally plants distrust in Eve's heart towards her maker. It's the second text in Romans. Lest we think that somehow we can keep all these commands. Romans removes that in this picture of salvation history. And he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. It's like an invitation to step off your pedestal. Come on. No, come on. No, I'm the exception. No, you're not the exception. Come on down. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. I'm a seeker. No, you're not. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In some measure, all of us have been seduced by an alternative voice. Paul has already said, listen to this in Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them. How is it plain? How is it known? Because God has shown it to them. How? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation, Genesis, of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. The third book and the final portion we'll look at is this word, this voice, is now made flesh for the purpose of dying for us. 
That's the gospel according to John. In the beginning was the interesting choice of divine title now was the word. And the word was God and the word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. See, he's the creator. And without him, this word, not anything was made that was made in him was life. He's the essence of life. And the life was the light of men like the sun on the earth. The light shines in the darkness. Nothing is hid from the heat thereof. And the darkness has not overcome it. It can't. Who is this? John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So how does the law go together with the word Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul says this. The law was our guardian, our schoolmaster until Christ came. The law is leading us to a dependence on Jesus. Matthew 5, Jesus fulfilled the law. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set that aside, nailing it to the cross. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. You see all this coming together. This is the good news. And in chapter 4, right after it says, God loved the world, and he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, we run into someone who is even known as a sinner by sinner standards. She is a great sinner. The woman at the well. She is a presumptuous sinner. Because maybe there's somebody here thinking, it's not just my hidden faults. I have been a presumptuous sinner. And that voice of the word begins to ask her questions. Gently exposes her sin. Introduces to her who he is. And she is saved. She is forgiven. And she's going on and now she's telling other people about Jesus. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. I'm going to ask our music team to come forward and ask you to stand. I'm going to read three verses and then we will sing in Christ alone as a confession, as our response to what we've heard. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. As Romans 1 says, they're without excuse because they already know. He is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray.